This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading the Eye on Education podcast from the 26th of August. And on the programme today, we got you prepped and ready for school, whether or not it's your child's first day or if they're just going back after a long summer break. We also discussed whether studying STEM subjects is always the best option for every child, as respected UK professor Stefan Havlin calls for pupils to study the arts as well. Meanwhile, career advisor Maria Vitoritos talked us through how you can best prepare your children for the future. And our My Classroom segment travelled to Ghana this week, where we spoke to a teacher at a Dubai Cares-sponsored school. Charlotte Adinku is a master trainer who hosts classes for hundreds of teachers at a time. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Welcome to our Eye on Education special. It is our chance to talk about all the headlines that have come through over the last few days in connection to schools, universities and nurseries. And suffice to say, it has been a pretty busy old week. Uh, we, we've got everyone getting ready to go back to school. And we've had a whole bunch of new regulations released by, first of all, NSEMA. Uh, and then closely followed, that was the, 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 that's the National Centre for emergency and crisis management. They released rules uh, for kids going back to school and then they, for the public schools. And then Abu Dhabi's educational authority and Dubai's educational authority, both of those look after the private schools, they quickly came out with their rules. Now I'm joined in the studio by Andrew Hosey who's been following this story. Uh, What is the situation as far as these new rules that were implemented uh, before children went back to school? All right. so first of all the UAE said students will be able to attend lessons in person regardless of COVID-19 vaccination status. That was according to a spokesman for the country education sector. Speaking ahead of the new academic year in which over 1 million students and 65,000 teaching staff will return to education, Hazza Al-Mansuri said that university students who are unvaccinated for medical reasons and those with vaccination exemptions can present the PCR tests required for the country's green pass system on the al Hassan app to enter universities. Students aged 12, however, and all 12 and above, however, and all staff must provide a negative test result from a PCR test conducted within 96 hours on the first day of school. This is under the NCMA guidelines, as you mentioned. They're going to be followed by public schools and ADEC in Abu Dhabi announced that they will be following those guidelines as well. Now, we've heard since then, subsequently, that some private schools in Dubai have confirmed that PCR tests will not be mandatory for students aged 12 and above and staff. Now, I'm guessing that if you're a parent of one of those schools that have announced that, you will have received that confirmation through an email. It was highlighted that regular testing won't be required following that initial PCR test done within 96 hours of validity. Uh, In other uh, news regarding COVID protocols, wearing face masks does remain mandatory inside closed areas. And e-learning and remote work options for students and staff who have COVID-19 or those suffering from respiratory system symptoms uh, will be allowed, the spokesman has said. Interesting. Uh, 
uh, that the mask mandate remains. Uh, of course, there were lots of parents who are hoping that it might be removed. Lots of chat on the messaging boards about that. And interestingly, in another country, Singapore, uh, the decision to drop indoor mask requirements has been made. Yes, they'll be doing away with those requirements to wear masks indoors. This is going to start from August the 29th. This is as the country is seeing its COVID-19 situation stabilise further. This is all according to the health ministry. For the first time in more than two years, people in the Southeast Asian city-state will no longer be required to wear masks indoors. They will be expected to do so, continuing on on public transport and in high-risk settings like healthcare facilities. And the health ministry also updated rules for non-vaccinated travellers. Dropping a seven-day quarantine requirement, that's starting next week as well. Singapore, of course, is a major Asian financial and travel hub. It lifted a lot of its pandemic curbs, including Uh, curbs, including travel restrictions earlier this year. Now, about 70% of the 5.5 million population has already contracted COVID-19 on Yukung. The health minister did say in a news conference, adding that the reinfection rate so far, they've said, according to their statistics, is very low. Singapore is one of those countries that has a high vaccination, one of those city-states, sorry, has a high vaccination rate. More than 90% of its population has uh, been vaccinated and has also uh, recorded one of the lowest COVID-19 mortality rates across the world. Interesting stuff that Singapore has actually uh, now sort of leapfrogged the UAE in its mask uh, mandates because I know a lot of people who chose to leave Singapore uh, because of the, the the major restrictions that continued for months and months. Their children weren't able to go to school for months. And actually worth mentioning, uh, also in the Philippines, children went back to school this week for the first time in two years. So we do, it's important as we go back to school, however upset some parents might be about children having to wear masks, it's worth Worth remembering that that the children are going back to school and they have been back in school since September 2020 without any major hiccups. It's been very uh, well managed. I think has. the whole uh, the whole um, pandemic and the answers to the questions that were asked by that pandemic have been have been dealt with very well in this country. And uh, I guess that uh, the the rules have been issued and they are issued for the best for all of us and. Um, they're asking that we follow those guidelines. Um, as we are seeing COVID-19 new infections dropping slowly, but there's still, as I mentioned the other day, uh, over 19,000 active cases uh, remaining in the UAE. Right. OK, let's just have a look uh, internationally because there is a massive story coming out of the United States. I, I mean, it would be so exciting if you were a recent graduate oh, yes. and you saw this announcement in the paper this morning. So, yes, the Biden administration says it will cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt. This cements a long-awaited and potentially controversial decision that had the president's inner circle refining the plan until the hours before the announcement. So borrowers making $125,000 or $250,000 for married couples are eligible to have $10,000 in student loans wiped clean. Meanwhile, borrowers who received federal 
Pell Grants, which is basically a tuition assistant grant available to students from low and middle income families. They're eligible for $20,000 in student loan debt cancellation. In addition, anyone with an undergraduate loan will be able to cap repayments at 5% of their monthly income under a new income-driven repayment plan. Now, these figures to me are are huge. Uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to say I went to university when, uh, where I was from. uh, It was free. Student loans had just come in for the first year. So my debt leaving university was uh, £500, which is just over 2,000 dirhams um, for my entire uh, so mine was a course. bit more than that. And right. I didn't finish paying off my student debt until I was 26. Right. And, okay. it was, uh, uh, and it was quite, uh, you know, we did it gradually. But mine didn't get paid off till 26. And now if you, and that, and that was when I was only paying mm. 15,000 a year. And I had three years. And did you find that it, it was a bit of a burden? To actually, you knew that monthly payment was going to come out when yeah. you qualified for a certain uh, wage coming in. You had to pay it back. Did it? Did you feel that it actually ate into your monthly income? I just never felt that I was making decent money. I mm. mean, partly partly industry I chose. Um, you never make decent money in radio, but I think I think it was. Yeah, I, it was. It definitely restricted my spending, restricted my saving. I couldn't save at all, uh, and it was. Um, and imagine if you study medicine and you're you're coming out with, I don't know, like uh, people people come up with a million dirhams of debt after studying medicine. Yeah. Like it's a it's a really big deal. So any sort of impact, you know, any help that the government can offer in those circumstances. I mean, it's extraordinary that it's happening in America. But and you'd think, as you said, uh, you know, any help you'd think would be widely, widely uh, well received, but it's not being well received in the US at the moment. Uh, Moderate, even moderate Democrats are saying that this is a giveaway and is actually going to cause increasing inflationary pressures on the economy when at the time we can ill afford inflationary pressures. Interesting stuff. I mean, I love the news out of America. It's always pretty controversial. It always gets us talking. There's always there's always plenty of sort of reactionary opinions in both directions. It's such a polarised country nowadays. It really is fascinating. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. Yes, the countdown is on. Parents and pupils alike are preparing for the first day of school, which for most people, I think, is this Monday. If you can hear a certain amount of joy in my voice, unmasked joy, that's because I'm finding it very difficult to hide the fact that I am thrilled that the children, that my two boys will be back in school on Monday. I do find it quite a challenge over the summer, keeping them entertained and busy. Uh, So I'm very, very pleased that they will be back in education and back with the professionals. Uh, As you've just heard, there are several uh, of the COVID-19 regulations have been dropped, including social distancing and thermal screening. Pupils are also not required to be vaccinated to attend in-school classes. But masks do still need to be worn indoors. Now, meanwhile, for their part, the schools, of course, are getting ready to welcome back pupils. So let's get a sneak peek behind the school gates with Charlotte Greaves, who's Deputy Head of Prep for Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Hi, Charlotte. How are you? 
I'm very well, thank you. And I know you said you're getting excited, but so are we. Come on, are you really? (laughs) Yes, of course we are. Even though you all had a lovely summer as well. It's good to be back, is it? It's wonderful. I I mean, what other job has a first day every single year? (laughs) On your first day of your job, it's usually just the first day. But we have that privilege every single year. And it's such, I love this time of year. Okay, so what's it like behind the scenes? How many days before the school term are the teachers in and getting ready? And what does that getting ready look like behind the scenes? So for for about the last two weeks, we've been getting ready. First of all, we have been busy inducting new teachers um, to the RGS. Um, there's a real energy and they're so fantastic. They're so excited about joining the school. We've been meeting them from the airport um, touring them around to see their classroom. So that's really exciting. And then we had our returning teachers come back on Monday. Lots of wonderful teachers building activities and just meeting everybody there's just an incredible buzz it's all about those professional conversations about learning and teaching planning innovative ideas for engaging the students when they return and it's really just getting everyone reminding them about our learning habits and our values so that we're ready um, to learn and we're all happy and ready Okay, so how about the uh, the KHDA's COVID-19 rules for children coming back to school? Because, I mean, three years ago, I wouldn't be asking anything like this. It would just be about learning and lessons. But of course, since the pandemic, schools have had that responsibility uh, to look after their children's health as well. Absolutely. And the KHDA have been you know, fantastic in ensuring that over the summer that we've been updated. Um, all of the protocols have been shared with principals and it's on their website as well for our parents. And we've been sharing that with our parents over the coming weeks um, together with our timetables, lovely messages from the teachers as well. I um, mean, it's really important that we're making sure that our children feel settled. They've obviously been on holiday to different countries where rules have been slightly different. So it's really important to make sure that we're reminding them of the protocols of wearing our masks indoors, um, making sure that we're cleaning and sanitising all that high level of of, of the things that we've been doing in the past two years are still there and still, you know, maintaining all of those things in line with the Dubai Health Authority as well. So I find it hard to keep track of where we were on social distancing at the end of last term. Is there a change this time? Can the kids be closer together again? Yes, they can be closer together in lessons. So, you know, when they're sitting at a table, that they can be, you know, close together. It's just really important that we're sensible and that we're reminding children that we're not hugging and that we're being sensible about, you know, how we're walking around the school and how we're playing together. But yes, they've been very, very good at making sure that we're we're, we're doing everything we can. And, and with regard to the masks, um, you know, it's important. We're all modelling wearing masks as adults. And as we know with children, if you model that well, they will begin to understand why we're doing it and why we're trying to be safe uh, um, for the country. And what is really, really important, of course, we are looking forward to the day 
say we don't have to do all of this, but it's really important that we are just simply following the protocol and being very, very clear with the children about that and the adults. So we've been practicing that for the last two weeks as well with the teachers. Well, that is so, and that that chimes in with how parents can prepare their children for the first day back. Because as you mentioned, I mean, I'm one of many families that left the country. I went back to the UK. No one's wearing a mask anywhere there. So no doubt, although I actually... That's a good point. I actually haven't raised it with my children yet. Uh, so, so how should I be preparing? How should we all be preparing our children for that first day back? It's really, really important, no matter how young your children are, it's about preparing them for that first day back at school. Um, Get them involved with getting their bag ready, getting their lunch ready, um, making sure their uniform is ready the night before. It doesn't matter if you're FS1 or if you're going into senior school. It's part of those conversations. And saying to the children, you know, we are going to have to wear masks from age six and above. And everybody's going to be wearing them in the school. It's very exciting, you know, that we are going to be all following the same protocols. We've shared the timetables with our families now and lovely messages from their teachers. They've got those. So they've already got those connections with new teachers. So they should start to feel comfortable. I really encourage families to talk about the positives, make sure that they look at everything this weekend print the timetable off, put that up on a wall or up on the fridge and really have those lovely conversations. The most important thing for me as a family is remind the children how special they are, how amazing they're going, what an amazing year they're going to have and also just ensure them that it's about always working hard and being really ready to embrace learning at every opportunity and that includes being part of the policies and procedures as we come back to school. My goodness me, I'm starting to get slightly emotional about it all. Uh, and of course, a good night's sleep the day before. I'm a big fan of a good night's sleep. <laughs> That's all Absolutely, I talk about. Absolutely, for all of us. <laughs> yes, a good night's sleep, a bit of prep and a good night's sleep. Uh, Charlotte, thank you so much. Really good to have you on the radio. Thank you so much for your time. The best of luck uh, with for Monday. Uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Have I said that enough? <laughs> yes. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We can't wait to see you all. Thank you very much indeed, Charlotte Greaves, there, Deputy Head of Prep for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. Now we are discussing that back to school moment, which of course many of us are now counting down. Friday, it's Friday afternoon, isn't it? nearly. So you just got the weekend and then I think most kids are back in on Monday. Now exciting for most but also a little bit nerve-wracking particularly for those with first timers. Those are the FS1 or maybe the FS2 children who actually haven't put on their uniform and gone to school properly uh, ever before. I mean, obviously, lots of kids go to nursery before they go into FS1. uh, But this could be the start of something. Well, it will be the start of something pretty special for lots of families out there. Uh, So we wanted to find out how parents can prepare their children for the very first day at school. Uh, So I caught up with Angela Sutherland. Now, she is head of early years at Royal Grammar School Guild. Dubai. And I asked her that key question, you know, what can parents do to prepare their young ones for the very first day? The most important thing for parents to do is talk to their children. 
talk to them about their feelings. You know, are they anxious? Are they worried? Are they excited? Let's emphasize the positive, you know, talk about your first day at school, you know, any siblings' first days of school, that would be amazing. Um, but also talk to them about what to expect. You're going to meet a new teacher, you're going to meet new friends, maybe somebody from your previous nursery will be in your class. And that would be fantastic. So you've got a little buddy. One of the other things that's really lovely to do as well is try on your uniform. And that is just so lovely. I, I'm, I'm seeing already lots and lots of pictures on social media of first day of school, children wearing their uniforms. And uniforms are so important because it gives children a sense of belonging. And that's what we want them to do. We want them to belong to the RGS family. Um, so, you know, try on your uniforms. The next thing I would do, if it's possible, um, is visit the school. In the summer term, we were really lucky and um, invited in most of our new parents and children to come and do a stay and play. So they were able to meet myself, the head of nursery. And so they they had some familiar faces when they come into school and, you know, they know somebody's name. So it's not as daunting. So come and visit school and um, look around the classroom, take a walk with your mummy and daddy so you're feeling safe. Um, that would be fantastic. And we also, of course, have um, our teacher videos. So we have our returning teachers this year, but we also have new teachers coming to us at RGS but all of them already have sent home a video for the, for the families to watch. And that's really lovely. So when they come to their classroom door, it's a familiar face. They know the teacher's name. They've met the teacher. They see how excited they are for the beginning of term. And it's just going to be this wonderful experience for the children. The other thing I would do is at bedtime, there are lots and lots of books parents can be reading with children about the first day at school. And all of those things would be amazing to help us settle the children. Just to give you a sense of how emotional a day I think it is for parents, even hearing you describe those steps and imagining those little tots going in for their first day I can get quite emotional about it now and my children are now nine and eight and it is a real wrench like you can really feel it I mean are there often tears from the children when their parents leave um there, there can be tears and it all depends on you know the character of the child their prior experience, some children will have gone to nursery, some children will be transitioning straight from home and have maybe never been left for an extended period with other people um, before. And we understand that and we, you know, adapt our teaching styles, our strategies to accommodate all of the children. And actually, you know, sometimes it is the parents who have the tears as well um, you know and, and there's lots of advice for parents on that too nursery teachers and early years teachers are a special breed um, not you know all teachers are nurturing but I think we're very attuned to very little children and the strategies of being able to distract and comfort and bring the children along with their new friends um, all means that usually within five or 10 minutes, those, those tears have gone. Um, and it's just about us talking to the children, talking to the parents and making sure that everybody's calm and relaxed. And sometimes, you know, it can take a longer time for a child to settle, but 
as long as we're talking to the parents and we're discussing what the worries are and what the concerns are, there's usually nothing we can't overcome together. It's all about partnerships. Often it is, I think, parents who actually struggle with their children going into school and it's the parental nerves. And I remember waiting uh, on the first day in the sort of parents' room you know, for the all clear, so to speak. And I got the all clear within about three minutes, but I still couldn't leave. (laughs) So I was the problem in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it it can be that sometimes parents subconsciously are giving off body language that the children pick up on. Children are really adept at nonverbal communication. And if you're anxious about them leaving, they pick up on that anxiety. And so for you as a parent, it's about putting on the big smile and being really positive and saying, oh, look, there's so-so, how wonderful. Oh, my goodness, look at, look at what you're doing outside today. You know, and all of those kinds of really positive conversations to have with the children. And, of course, um, you know, if a parent needs to see, we've got a parent cafe downstairs. And just as you said, um, there's oftentimes when I've sort of said to, to parents, please do stay in the cafe. Stay close by if you need to. If it, if your child's really, really too distressed and we can't calm them down, by all means, you know, let's try again tomorrow. But on the most part, that is very, very rare. And I can't remember the last time that that happened in my experience. Usually, as you said, within about five minutes, I would be popping to the parent and saying, look, here's the iPad. Here, look, look at them. I've just taken a video. Look what's happening. That they're engaged, they're, they're reading a book with their class teacher, or the teaching assistant is counting with them, or they're doing something. And it's just that step. So for parents, it's to keep relaxed, keep talking to the teachers, and be confident that we've got your children's best interests at heart. Fantastic advice there from Angela Sutherland, who is Head of Early Years at Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Have you got the first day jitters? This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and welcome back to the programme. Right, we are up for a big discussion over the next half hour uh, because it's fair to say that STEM subjects come under the spotlight on a regular basis when we talk about education. Now, when I'm saying STEM, those initials stand for science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And when we talk about them, we usually discuss them in terms of trying to increase the number of pupils staking STEM subjects at school. Now, undoubtedly, there is going to be a demand for expertise in those subjects, in particular in this new high-tech fourth-generation workplace that we're all worrying about. And undoubtedly, at the moment, there aren't enough girls studying those subjects. So I'm a huge proponent uh, of any programme that tries to get girls into studying those subjects. But what if it's not the best thing for your child? Joining me now is one university lecturer who has a slightly different view to the norm. I'm very happy to welcome Professor Stefan Havlin. He's a professor of English literature at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom. And he joins me now on Microsoft Teams. Good morning, Professor Havlin. How are you? 
Uh, good morning, Georgia. Nice to be on, on your show. Well, I say morning. I keep on getting corrected on this. It's afternoon for us now, but but the programmes run so quickly that I've slightly lost track of where I am. Uh, OK, so tell me, I, I started this conversation with you because I read a letter that you wrote in The Guardian newspaper. And we know how hard it is to get anything published in The Guardian. Uh, so I was really interested to read your views. And essentially, you prefaced it with, yes, STEM subjects, good, but maybe arts subjects better. Could you outline your arguments on that for me? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a question of being better. Um, it's a question of us needing both. Um, and um, I, I think the reason the Guardian published the letter is it's part of a larger movement in England now, not only at Buckingham University but elsewhere, to sort of come back against STEM. Uh, there's no opposition between arts and humanities and sciences. That's just silly. Um, we need both. Um, uh, so that, that's the first sort of myth to break down. Um, we, we need both sides of these things. My great colleague, um, Raymond Tallis, you know, he said, you know, the spectacularly, sound, spectacularly successful scientific enterprise needs uh, to be reconciled with other no less important ways of understanding our lives and our human nature. And those are the, human, the great humanities subjects and the art, great art subjects, you know, um, the whole, all of them, you know, religious studies, philosophy, history, politics, uh, history of art, English literature, modern foreign languages. We need all those things desperately. And uh, the more we understand that, the better. So it's not an opposition. That's the first thing we need to break down. One is more important than the other. Everything connects. We're all connected. So... Um, Oh, sorry. And the second, thing we need to, the second thing we need to break down is the idea that art subjects somehow don't lead through to useful or interesting careers. Um, you know, this has been broken down again and again and again. You know, uh, the leading CEOs of many world companies, you know, Xerox, um, uh, who else? Um, you know, people like Xerox, people like M MTV, people like Disney. They've been run by people with, in, in, in that case, directly English literature degrees, which you believe. Um, but people need to believe that. People need to understand that. You know, people like um, Michael Eisner, you know, at Disney, he ran Disney Corporation for 20 years, um, you know, did an English literature degree and, and always advocated it uh, as, as a useful, to, to, as, as building the soft interpersonal skills that allowed him to run that company successfully. So without Michael Eisner, we wouldn't have The Lion King and we wouldn't have Beauty and the Beast and such wonderful things. So, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's not get the idea that um, culture doesn't make money, for example, I mean, as well as many other things. So that those, those two things, let's, let's break down the myths. You know, art and sciences are not opposed. They're part of a whole. And you know, secondly, that um, there are good, many good careers coming out of arts degrees as there are out of science degrees. So the reason why this might be a particularly pertinent time to talk about it is because often during times of uh, recession or hardship, which certainly does seem to be the, you know, and we've had enough warnings from the major banks to suggest that most of the world is heading towards rather a sharp recession, potentially, that that traditionally during those times, I suppose parents and therefore children are more likely to choose a degree that leads them, as they believe, to a solid, well-paid job. Things like an accountant or an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, 
And for all of those, you need STEM subjects. You know, they're good, well-paid, solid jobs. Whereas maybe a philosophy degree or an English literature degree, and I I have one of those, uh, maybe doesn't lead you so clearly into a successful, well-paid job in the same way. So I suppose we could be facing a situation where we're about to hit a stage where most or a lot of uh, more pupils choose to do those STEM degrees. What concerns you about that possibility? I don't, I just don't think it's true. I think we always need um, both sets of skills. And, you know, if we're going to crowd children into STEM subjects, um, all, all kinds of things happen in relation to that. I mean, in England, simply, for example, um, you know, more, more students are taking STEM and more students want to do medicine at university, which is lovely. But there are a limited number of medical places at university so that they are cut off at that stage. Lots of people are going to be rejected from UK universities uh, after aiming towards medicine. And you can go on like that. Um, People think in narrowly vocational terms. They really do, actually, in very narrow vocational terms. And I have to say, my career advisor at school was incredibly guilty of that, that you just don't get a sense of the the many, many different types of career that an arts degree leads you towards. Um, hugely. And, you know, I mean, there, there was a study in uh, 2015 of uh, 1,700 people from 30 countries uh, in leadership, serious leadership roles. And, you know, most of them had humanities or social science degrees, for example. You know, one could go on and on and on. Um, you know, most of the people who take law in England, they think, aha, I'll, I'll take a law degree. That's really good. You know, I, I, but most of them do not go into the law um, because there are lim- once they've done their law degree, there are a limited number of training places. Uh, and some of the best lawyers in England did English literature first and are valued for that because they do English literature and then they do a, a year's conversion because they can write, they can think. Uh, they have all these soft skills that people really value. So. I think that is it. I think we have to understand that in a changing world, and it's got to, it's got to change much more. Think how much more the world has got to change with the ecological crisis. We have to reimagine, rethink the kind of people we are. We have to rethink the kind of lives we're going to lead if we're going to keep the planet safe. And it's, you know, it is um, this other side of human nature, whatever you want to call it, uh, the emotional, the spiritual side of human nature, in which we will solve that issue, we will solve these fundamental issues. Is there are no simple scientific solutions? I mean, there have to be scientific solutions to the ecological crisis, but we have to have the ability to morally and spiritually to want to enact those solutions. And a lot of the solutions are not science solutions. You know, we we may need to travel less. We all those kind of things. We have to reimagine different forms of life. If we need to imagine a different form of life to keep living on this planet, we need we need religious studies, philosophy, politics, all these things um, that you know are so easy to caricature, so easy to to um, think are not useful. We need more than the useful.
absolutely fascinating uh, and very well argued uh, uh, theory there. And I have to say, as someone with an English literature degree uh, and, and with a husband with a law degree who actually did manage to go on to be a lawyer, uh, he managed to get one of those well sought after places. Uh, I'm very pleased that you have argued uh, for my degree so so thoroughly. I have to say, I'm not sure whether the hours I spent reading Dickens necessarily led me to this role. I mean, I have an in-depth knowledge of Victorian Britain as well, I suppose. Um, but but I'm very pleased I did do an English literature degree. So I would, I am a huge proponent of it. Uh, thank you so much for your time, sir. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, Professor Stefan Havlin there, a professor of English literature at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom. I would really love to hear from you. What did you do at university? And has it does it bear any resemblance to what you do right now in your workplace? I, I particularly obviously love to hear from those of you who did the art subjects at university. Uh, but equally, if you did, you know, if you did one of the STEM subjects and now you're working uh, at Disney, then do get in touch as well. Uh, David says that he studied marketing and sales management and ended up in electronics. Intriguing. Uh, this person who hasn't given their name said, I studied communications and did a postgrad in design management. Today, I'm an executive creator director. I've been running advertising agencies for the past 12 years in six different countries, so it's certainly paid off. Very interested to hear whether you did an arts or science degree, whether or not you're doing well now. There are suggestions. There's a sort of general sentiment that if you do a STEM degree that you're going to end up with a better paid job. Uh, I would be interested to know whether that pays out anecdotally. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. Right, we are discussing whether university students should consider a degree in a STEM subject or in an arts subject as it emerges that English literature has fallen out of favour with fewer A-level pupils studying the subject than ever before. The top ones are maths, biology and chemistry. At least they are the most popular subjects for A-level in the UK. And there is certainly a real drive here in the UAE for more students to take up STEM subjects. We've just heard uh, from a professor of English literature in Buckingham, Dr Stefan Havling. He argues that the arts subjects are just as important. But do they really lead to better paid jobs? And should that be our priority when it comes to our children's future? Joining me now to discuss just that topic is Maria Vitoratos. Oh, I hope I get this right. Vitoratos. Maria Vitoratos. She's a careers advisor, executive coach and mentor with 25 years of teaching experience in young people from the ages of three to 21. And alongside the coaching that she gives her students, she also teaches them how to prepare for the world of work and to create employment plans. Hello there, Maria. I'm sorry for murdering your name. Thank you for joining us on the line. It's great to be here. And that's why I, I let everyone call me Miss V. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Uh, OK, firstly, let's have a quick look back at yesterday. The GCSE results came out. There were lots of celebrations, but inevitably there will be some people who may not have received the grades that they were hoping for. What advice would you give them? I think yesterday was just another day in the life of a, of a young person's academic journey where the indication of success or the opposite of what society has created success to be for a student 
really came to the forefront. So for any young person or any parent of a young person listening in right now, I think the grade that your child received yesterday should just be a summative indication of how much knowledge they retained, how much how well they did in an exam setting, but definitely should not be an indication of their career success. And if you look at any of the research in, in career development, you know, I am yet to find empirical evidence that backs up that a student's GCSE grades or even their A-level grades or IB grades are an indication of career fulfillment and definitely career success. Now, we've been discussing, I mean, that is very encouraging words, frankly, for anyone who's just got their exam results over the last few weeks, both GCSEs and A-levels. And I hope that if anyone's sort of commiserating at the moment, that they will feel inspired by that. I mean, as these pupils look ahead and as their parents look ahead, you know, it's understandable that the lots of parents, basically, you want your children to be earned, you know, be able to earn a decent salary so they can stand on their own two feet. In your experience, does that tend to come from a STEM degree or maybe an arts degree, or is there no real comparison? Well, listen, you know, if you're going to look at career development in a very linear fashion, then you'll be looking at a subject as an indication of an occupation. But we know that career development is not simplistic. It's a very complex uh, conversation. And I think that a young person in education right now needs to look at the two conversations that are happening in parallel One is what are the academic subjects of interest? What are the academic subjects that may open doors to very specific degrees that may then open doors to very specific careers? But if a young person is very unclear about that path that they want to be taking in their career, and of course that's very normal and very common and very expected of a 16, 17, or even an 18-year-old. In fact, even at the age of 22, we still see young people uncertain about those career paths. So I think that there are two conversations, whether to take a STEM subject or not, even that is very complex. I was in a workshop the other day that stipulated higher education institutions are now looking at STEM and opening up what is considered STEM. For example, uh, in the US, there are institutions that see business as a STEM subject. So you really want to be looking at this in two conversations. A young person should be encouraged, especially if they're in a system of education where they have to choose three subjects at A-levels, that they should be choosing those subjects that they are very interested in, that they are capable of achieving, because looking at a subject is not just looking at what grade am I getting. It has a huge impact on a young person's well-being, on a young person's confidence about themselves as learners. And then as they start to develop more of an awareness, more insights into what their interests are career-wise, we can then start to help them create those plans, helping them move forward. And even at that, there's enough development theories out there to indicate that there's not one way to go about career discovery. So a young person should be encouraged to spend their high school years, their secondary years, to begin to explore, choose subjects that they're interested in, sit down with their subject teachers, really look at their strengths of learning and some of those challenges that they might have learning 
choosing subjects that way. Now, I know for a parent listening in right now, they might be saying, how can that be possible if I want my child to be going into engineering or medicine or even law, as a matter of fact, or many, many other degrees? What you, you want to remember is that there are thousands of higher education institutions. And the assumption there is that every single high school student or secondary student will go to university. And we know that's not true and should not be the norm that we keep enforcing on a young person because that also uh, increases the anxiety and the stress in a young person. And then, of course, we want to remember that if we're looking at going back to your questions, parents want their children to be successful in their careers, to be able to be financially independent and also to be thriving, then we need to stop teaching careers in a classroom and start opening up those classrooms walls and sitting down with talent finders, finding out what is required to be career ready. And what we start to see is that more and more organizations are expecting young people, even with a higher education degree, to be upskilling. So there'll be other certificates or other diplomas that they might have to be gaining, even if they go through those STEM subjects at higher education. I wanted to talk to you, Maria, a little bit more about planning your career and, and whether or not really it is appropriate at, at 17 or 18 to really look quite far into the future. How do you work with your students uh, on their career plans? How do you give them a sense of the way in which their, their, you know, a sort of sense of how their career could plan out? I think what you want to remember is that when we're preparing a young person for their future careers, we're not preparing them for a 30, 40, 50 year lifespan. We're preparing them for that very first milestone. So I'm an advocate of career development in life stages, which makes it more like bite-sized pieces for a young person. So when you look at policies that are written for career development, if you look at the OECD policies, for example, the stipulated age is 15 years and up in helping a young person as young as 15 or even 14 to begin to start learning more about themselves as individuals they'll begin to really understand who they are. And by the time they get to those pinnacle transitional years, as they're getting closer to graduation, they're more confident in themselves and they're more ready to start thinking about that next milestone. So when I'm helping a young person, I'm not asking them to pick one occupation and that's it. We're sticking to it. Of course, that's not even realistic anymore in today's time. What we do is we look at the bigger picture and by bigger picture i try to zoom them all the way out to if you could pick a problem in the world as an example you know what skills do you believe you have that could solve or be part of the solution for that problem by doing something like this i'm able to help a young person connect with a bigger purpose i'm not saying their purpose i'm saying a bigger purpose when we're able to feel fulfilled in our careers we're able to get really excited we're more motivated and we start to look at subjects or lessons or even the uh, education pathways that we take as the steps to get us closer to solving the problem that we want to be solving. And also it helps a young person understand that an occupation is not a one-stop shop. It's really about evolving. So we look at right, if that is the solution that you want to be part of, then let's go back several steps. Where should it all begin? And, and we take it from there. 
really fascinating to, to get a sense of how children should be thinking about their, their plans and, and therefore, you know, how parents can help them uh, do that, those bite-sized chunks. Thank you very much indeed. A pleasure to speak to you, Maria Vitoratos, a careers advisor, executive coach and mentor with over 25 years of teaching experience. Really great to get your views on that. Right, over the next few minutes, we're going to be turning our attention to an unusual classroom. It is one of my favourite segments of the week. It's the one where we get to virtually travel to a school in a far-flung place, be it, I don't know, the jungle, be it the beach. We've been to the the plains of Botswana. We've been deep into uh, the jungle in Bali. Uh, And today we are heading to Ghana. I will tell you more in just a few minutes' time. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back to the programme. Now it is time for one of my favourite segments uh, that we host on the agenda. It's called My Classroom and it is our chance to virtually travel around the world. Uh, Our aim is to speak to educators who teach their children in unusual schools. In the last season of Ion Education, we travelled to the Bangladesh boat schools. Uh, We went to a jungle school in Bali uh, and a beach school in Australia. And today we are heading to Ghana to visit the Train for Tomorrow project, which is supported by Dubai Cares. Now, this school is unusual in all sorts of different ways. First of all, it teaches teachers. Joining me now to explain is Charlotte Adinku, who is a master teacher and trainer. She joins me on the phone. Hi, Charlotte. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. I hope you're also fine. I'm very well indeed. Thank you. Yes. And I'm very grateful to you for joining us on the line. Now, can you tell me a little bit more about the Train for Tomorrow school in Ghana? Okay. So, um, Train for Tomorrow actually is a project which was funded by Dubai Cares in Ghana. And this project was implemented by Plan International. And um, the project is such that it's um, we use satellite technology to deliver high-quality teacher training lessons to 20 colleges of education. So because it's technology-driven, we have all the um, training colleges have been technologically enabled to um, log on to a studio in Accra. So when it's time for lessons, they log on for sessions and the technology enables one teacher to reach out to hundreds of teachers in multiple locations at the same time. So that that is the project that we had. It sounds truly extraordinary. You've answered my next question, which is where is your school located? Because you mentioned there it's in Accra, but of course you're reaching across the whole of Ghana. Is it just a countrywide project or do you reach outside the country as well? No, for now, it's just within the country. So across different regions within the country, when it's time for lessons, because they've been powered by solar panel and satellite technology, they can connect to one studio in Accra and have sessions. So when you start your class, you're essentially teaching hundreds of people at one time? Yes, hundreds, over wow. hundreds of people, yeah. Wow, that's an extraordinary responsibility. I mean, how does Dubai Cares support the school? You touched on a few things there. You mentioned uh, solar technology. 
Yes. So um, because it's technologically driven, um, every equipment that is installed in the school was sponsored by Dubai Cares. And these um, the catacos, um, computers, um, various batteries, it's a whole system set up. And the teachers are trained on how to use the technology to interact with um, your studio teacher. They are trained on various pedagogies and andragogies on how to handle their lessons, how to um, support their learners in school. So all these things goes on in the school. The community is also trained. Their officers are also trained. And the learners themselves are also impacted. So it's an inclusive activity. And at the end, we expect that we see the output in learners' outcome. So one of the key elements, I suppose, in your lessons when you're teaching teachers is to encourage them to empower the students in their schools. How do you do that? Yes. For Plan International, one key thing that we look out for is issues of gender, especially girls education. So in our delivery, we ensure that we, we look out for the girls. We intentionally look out for them providing various opportunities for them to pick up leadership roles, encouraging the girls to express their opinions. Especially when COVID came, there were various gaps that um, COVID came with. And after COVID, one of the models we developed to train teachers was psychosocial um, models. And all these things is to help children who are in distress. And most of these corporates are girls. There are times that we are able to bring them um, role models. In some of the re- these schools covered remote villages, and in some of the locations, children um, have not seen a doctor before, a female doctor before, or a female military officer before. But um, through this technology, we were able to showcase live. They can see the person live. They can ask questions. They can relate, and then they can have that aspiration and hope that um, they can plan their life towards um, what they want to be in future. So these are some of the things that we train teachers and support learners for them to come out and do their best, especially with the girls. Did you find that when you're teaching the teachers that there is still some gender bias, that they, if you hadn't sort of presented the argument to them but that girls and boys need to be taught equally that that there might have still been that bias definitely there's that bias because in our cultural system there are various gaps um, where um, there's that expectations that um, the boys should always take the lead and even among the children themselves and even among the teachers they believe that oh boys are better than girls and more opportunities are given to the boys, even in asking questions in classroom. So coming in with this approach and ensuring that um, the lessons you are delivered are differentiated, they are inclusive, they are gender sensitive, various images they use, a choice of words, um, and all these. So um, it's really, really important that we came in with this strategy. If not, we will still have the gap being widened.
And do the teachers uh, sign on voluntarily? Are they are, are they sort of already experienced teachers and, and essentially signing up for sort of extra training through this programme? Yes, so the teachers we worked with are Ghanaian teachers. They are government Ghanaian teachers who are already in their schools. So when it's time for sessions, they gather at the various training colleges, which we call hubs. So they will have various hubs. They gather over there, and then they have one facilitator who facilitates the whole activity. So at one center, you have hundreds of teachers gathering from different districts to have the learning, the, the lessons. And at the end, we're expecting that they go back to their various districts to cascade whatever they've learned, they practice it practically. The next sessions, they come back with feedback and um, what went well, what didn't go well, how can we do it better? And it's, it's improved. So it's more like a continuous professional development activity that is progressive. Charlotte, I have to say I've become slightly emotional during our interview. It just sounds like the most extraordinary programme and, and the most effective way of teaching teachers around Ghana. And, and you must have an enormous sense of satisfaction that you're managing to reach so many people uh, with, with such an amazing programme. Sure, very amazing. One amazing thing um, T4T was able to do with the help of Dubai Cares, for example, during the COVID period, um, because we were already doing an online live session, we worked with the Ministry of Education in rolling out a distance learning program. So when schools closed down, um, learners were not in school, teachers were not also in school. Um, we worked with the government to develop a digital lesson that was um, being across the country nationwide. And it was able to reach out to five, over 5 million busy school learners across the country and was aired on national TV. And it was such a success that um, we also worked with um, the same ministry to produce teacher training videos, which was also to help support their um, continuous professional development. So it was really, really a success. Charlotte, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. We've got to go to the news now, but thank you so much for your time. Absolutely fascinating programme and amazing work being done there in Ghana. That is Charlotte Adinku. She's a master teacher and trainer with the Train for Tomorrow project in Ghana, which is supported by Dubai Cares. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. And that's all from the Eye on Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.